The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. When you see the lightning flash across the sky, when you hear the thunder rumbling, when you see the rain falling and dripping off the leaves and running down, when you see the sun glistening off the lake or feel the gentle breeze blowing across your skin, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. They're joining in the chorus to sing praise to Him and to give glory to Him. We can kind of understand that. We get this concept of of all of creation rejoicing in the presence of God, rejoicing in the glory of God. But do we truly know what the glory of God actually is? It's kind of a vague term. We hear it used in church, but what is it? And why is it important in our lives? And how can we join with all of creation in giving glory to God? In the Old Testament, the word that is translated glory means weight or heaviness. It means something of substance. And in in the case of God, the ultimate substance. God is real. He is substantial in our lives. In the New Testament, the word that is translated glory mostly means magnificence, excellence, majesty, or brilliance. Here we see the, that God is, is being magnified, being exalted. His majesty is above all things. He is excellent beyond compare. St. Augustine, the early church father, said of God's glory, he describes it as brilliant celebrity with praise. Now that word celebrity, when we hear it, we start thinking of a movie star or a pop singer or something like that when we hear celebrity. But actually, the word celebrity means one who is celebrated or honored. We have our American idols. We have our celebrities, baseball players, football players, singers, actors. We have those kinds of celebrities. But when it comes to the celebrity of God, He above all is to be honored and celebrating for His infinite worth. Now, I want to give you kind of my working definition of the glory of God and glorifying God. And here it is. The glory of God is the infinite weight of His majesty, the substance of God's majesty. And our glorifying of God is acknowledging His brilliance and unsurpassing worth. And so God... God's glory itself is His his glorious presence, His infinite, the weight of His majesty. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. When we see these encounters with God, it is always an awesome experience as people come to, to see His brilliance and His might and His glory and His power. All that summed up together is the glory of God. When we glorify God, we are simply acknowledging who He is, acknowledging the brilliance of His presence, acknowledging His unsurpassing worth, acknowledging that above all things, His is the most substantial presence that we will ever have in our lives. We want to look this morning at an encounter that took place that helps us to understand the glory of God and to experience it more. But in order to do that, 
I need to give you a little background. I need to catch you up. And so let's begin in the book of Exodus. You don't have to turn there right now. I'm going to give you a running tour of about 30 chapters. Here we go. The book of Exodus begins by telling of the captivity of God's people, the children of Israel, in Egypt. They were in bondage, in slavery to Pharaoh there in Egypt. It tells of a man named Moses who was raised in the palace who saw an atrocity being committed against a, one of the Israelites and actually killed the Egyptian guard and fled for his life. It tells of this man becoming a shepherd. It tells of this man having an encounter on a mountain where he saw a bush that burned but was not consumed with fire. We've heard of the burning bush. And the Lord spoke to Moses out of that burning bush. The content of his speech was, and if I can summarize it, basically said that he was to take his brother Aaron and that he was to go to Egypt, back to Egypt, with this message. Let my people go. The children of Israel in bondage, in slavery. And here Moses was, having run away from Pharaoh's palace, now going back to Pharaoh, saying... (laughs) God said, the Lord said, let my people go. As you can imagine, Pharaoh was not inclined to let his labor force go. This was free work, free labor. He didn't want to let them go. And so uh, he just said no. And God, over a course of plagues that took place, that God sent into the land of Egypt, God convinced Pharaoh that it would be in his best interest and the best interest of the nation to let his people go. And so Pharaoh did. And the people were so glad that they were leaving town and that all these plagues were going to stop that they actually brought out gold and valuables and gave to the children of Israel as they prepared to leave and head for the promised land. Now, as they got out of town, they came to the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, which was kind of a barrier, there were mountains and there was a Red Sea, as they were, they were camped there, ready to move forward, Pharaoh changed his mind. He, was, he hardened his heart, and he began to gather his army and to pursue the Israelites. And here they are now. They're trapped. On three sides, they couldn't escape through, through a fourth. They, there were three sides. They were surrounded. Red Sea, mountains, and Pharaoh's army. They were as good as dead. And then the glory of God showed up again. He created a fire, a pillar of fire that was between them, between the Israelites and the armies of Pharaoh to separate them, to give them time. And then he instructed Moses to raise his staff. And when he did, the waters of the Red Sea parted and the children of Israel were able to cross over the Red Sea on dry land. And when they got to the other side, the, the pillar of fire disappeared and here comes Pharaoh's armies pursuing them. And then God closed up the waters. And drown the army. Displaying his power. Displaying his glory in a tremendous way. Now, if that's all God did, that would have been a lot. But that's not all he did. He began to care for his people as they traveled towards the promised land. He brought manna. Manna is like little flaky bread that would appear on the ground. In the morning. And the people went out and collected all that they wanted to eat. 
And when they got upset that they didn't have meat to eat, God caused quail to come and, and just hang over the camp so the people could literally pick them out of the air. And when they complained that they didn't have enough water to drink, God even caused Moses to hit a rock and the rock split and water poured out for the people to drink. God was meeting every need of the people all the way through. And now in the story, God brings the people to the base of Mount Sinai where he sets them apart and makes a covenant with them and he gives them some rules, some laws to live by, how to relate to one another and how to relate to him in a proper way. That they would be his people and God would be their God and they would worship him alone. Now, before we get to the point we're going to read a little more, there's a couple of major incidents that happen that you need to know about that really set the table. In Exodus chapter 24, we read these verses. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on, up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights in the presence and the glory of the Lord. Now, if we move up a little bit, find out what's, what's going on ground level while this is taking place on the mountain. While Moses was up on the mountain, the people got a little restless, and we read in Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. I mean, he's up there on the mountain. He's been gone for over a month. It looks like the mountain's on fire to us. He's gone. We're down here. We're abandoned. Aaron, who was kind of the next in command, Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And Aaron, who should have known better, asked the people to bring the gold that they'd gotten from Egypt. And he melted it. And he fashioned from it a golden calf, an idol, for them to worship. And many of the people began to gather around and worship the idol. And in that worship of this false god, a party broke out with all kinds of ungodly things taking place. Some people even called that idol the Lord. Now you can imagine that God was ticked off. Think about what he brought them through. He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He had rescued them from Pharaoh's army in a miraculous way. Every day of their lives, he had provided for them. He had given them the structure with which they should relate to one another and relate to him. God had met every one of their needs, and he was preparing to do something even greater in their lives. And the people rebelled and chose to worship a golden calf, an idol, instead of God. 
And so God sent Moses back down the mountain. Now, while he was up there, he had gotten these two tablets of stone from God, had the Ten Commandments written on them. So he's coming down the mountain, and when he sees what's going on, he smashes those two stone tablets in his anger. He goes into the camp. He has the idol torn down. He has it broken apart, pulverized, burned, put in the water, and calls the people to drink the water. If you want your God so bad, here he is. This is one of the low marks, one of the low water times for the people of Israel. And then Moses separated himself. He left the presence of the people, and he went to the tent of meeting, and he had a conversation with God. And that's what we want to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Exodus chapter 33. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 23. Exodus 33, 12 to 23. If you didn't bring your Bibles, it's okay. We encourage you to do so, but we will put the words up here on the screen so that you can follow along with us. Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 23. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. And cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. There's much to see here. God has been angered by the rebellion of these people who he's cared for. He basically offered, I don't know if you noticed, he offered to take Moses alone. He said, I will be, my presence will be with you. And then Moses backed off and said, wait a minute, I I want your presence with us. God was ready to start afresh with, with uh, just Moses. I'll just take you, leave these people behind, and let's just go. And so God had offered to do that. Moses said no. God had earlier told Moses that he would, he would send an angel before them, that, that his presence would not be with the people like they were, but it's okay, I'll send an angel, and he'll guide you, and, 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 and he'll, he'll guard and protect you. Moses said, no, if, if you're not going with us, We're not going. Moses was committed to his call 
that he had received when he first saw the glory of God in the burning bush. Moses understood that the abiding presence of the Lord was the most distinguished, the, the thing that distinguished them most from all the other nations in the world, from all the other religions in the world. Everyone around them had beliefs and practices. Everyone around them had um, religious rituals that they went through. Everyone around them had rules and regulations, but only they had the presence of God. Moses understood that made them distinct. That made them different from all the other nations. It was the God's presence, not the religious laws or practices or stuff that mattered. The other nations could have all the idols in the world. But Moses said, what we need is your presence. And then Moses makes this request. The boldest request in the Old Testament. Show me your glory. This request was not made because Moses' faith was shaky. It wasn't made because he doubted the presence of God. Moses had a deep, personal, and intimate relationship with the Lord. It had grown ever since the Lord introduced himself to Moses through that burning bush and gave Moses his name, the Lord, to call him. The reason Moses asked, show me your glory, is because he wanted to know God more to experience more of the Lord, to take this relationship that he had to a higher level or to a a deeper level, whichever metaphor you'd rather use. He wanted more of the Lord in his life. This reflects kind of what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians where he says, I want to know Christ. That's what I want. I want to know him. That is that's Moses' desire. Lord, I want to I know you more. Now, of course, we read if, if Moses had seen the fullness of the glory of God, he would have been consumed. No man can see the face of the Lord and, and live. But because of the relationship that God had with Moses, God said, okay, Moses, I'm going to honor your request, and I'm going to show you my glory. And so God took him to a place on a rock up in the mountain area, evidently where a rock had split, a cleft in the rock, a split in the rock. And he had Moses insert himself in that crack in the rock. And the goodness and glory of God showed up in all its brilliance and majesty. Had Moses seen all of that, he would have been consumed in an instant. But God, as if with his hand, covered that cleft. And the glory of God passed by. And then God removed his hand so that Moses could see a portion of his glory. As if he were watching the back of a man who were walking away. Not seeing it all. Not seeing God's face seeing the glory of the Lord pass by. Now this is an incredible story of one man's relationship with God, one man's hunger for God, one man's desire for more of God. He got to experience something that no one else had ever experienced. He got to know God in a way that perhaps hadn't been known since the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve a fuller, more complete understanding and revelation of the glory of God. 
It was an extreme experience. It was not something that was everyday and ordinary for for all the people. Moses and Moses alone got to experience this. And when I read about Moses' request, when I hear Moses say, God, show me your glory, two questions come to mind. The first is, Moses, what were you thinking? And the second is like unto it, have you lost your mind? Moses, you're asking to see the glory of God, knowing that if you were to see the face of God, you would be consumed and wiped out? Moses, you really, you really want to see God in all of His glory? You desire that? But Moses' desire to know more of God was greater than his fear of being zapped from on high. Think of this. Moses' passion to know God was so great that he was willing to die in order to experience it. That, my friends, is powerful. And God graciously revealed himself in a way that allowed Moses to experience more of him without getting zapped. But this request didn't happen overnight. You don't have Moses in front of the burning bush, this experience, and then the next page you have Moses over here going, God, show me your glory. There was a progression that took place in his understanding of who God was and what God's mission was and how Moses all fit into this. And this morning, I would like us to consider what got Moses to the point where he was willing to say, God, show me your glory, because from this, it is my hope and prayer that we can get to that point ourselves, where we are willing to express that prayer, God, no matter what it costs me, I want to know you more. I want to experience you more. Show me, God, your glory. And so let's understand this progression in Moses' life. Moses was known by God. In other words, he had a relationship with God. We see this. Moses said, God said, I've known you by name. Names are very important. They were especially important back then. If you had a person's name in in ancient thought, you actually had some power over them. And to give someone your name was to give them some power over your life. And so this con- we give out our names all the time. It's no big deal. We just throw them away. We wear them on our name tags. You know, we, no big deal. But to God to say, I know you by name was a big, big deal. Now, when we think of knowing, we think of, some, okay, I've got this knowledge. Um, you know, I was, um, uh, Lim Clark asked me last night when we were at the big uh, music ministry party last night, Lim Clark asked me if I knew what Mickey Mouse was called before he was called Mickey in the very first episode that had Mickey Mouse on in the movies. Anybody have an idea? Steamboat Willie. There you, well, you know. Okay, Steamboat Willie. Okay, I knew that. That's knowledge. That, and I know more trivial, useless stuff than just about anybody. Okay? I, there's, I know a lot of things. And when we think of know, that's what we think of, Knowledge. But when God knew Moses, it meant something entirely different. In fact, biblically, in the King James, a lot of times the word 
know means to have an intimate sexual relationship with someone, to know them. Boy, that's intimate. That's the kind of closeness that we get right here. This is how God knew Moses. And to be honest, it is the foundation for seeing his glory. If we want to see more of God, if we want to experience more of God, it begins with a personal relationship with him. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Listen to this. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Now let's, let's think about this. God knows everybody, but not in the relationship sense. That is where it begins for us. How do you begin that relationship? You receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Jesus, the Son of God, invites you into a relationship with His Father, invites you to become His son or His daughter, yourself. That's where it begins if you've been wondering what's missing in your life, if you've been wondering why you don't get to experience more of God in your life, to see more of His glory in your life, it begins with a relationship. And without that relationship, I'm telling you, you don't want more of God in your life. It begins by knowing God and God knowing you in a relationship sense. That's what Moses had. The second thing we see in this progression is that that Moses was attuned to God's leadership. In other words, he was obedient to God. He put himself in the center of God's will. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Our obedience, our moving ourselves to the center of God's will is simply part of expressing our love to him. If we love Him, we will want to be on the same page with Him. If we love Him, we will want to follow Him. If we love Him, we will want to align our lives to His will. But we pray, God, show me your glory. And God's looking at us and like, well, why don't you get back over here? You know, in order for for Moses to see the glory of God, he had to follow God to that point to see it. He didn't say, no, God, why why don't you just do it here? I mean, I'm already here. I don't want to walk up. It's kind of hot. I might get sweaty. It's humid outside. I don't really want to go up on the mountain anymore. I don't want to go up on that rock where you want me to be. Just do it here. Moses left where he was to go to be where God wanted him to be. And it was when he was in the center of God's will for his life that God showed him his glory. How can we expect to live outside the will of God and see the glory of God? The third part of this progression in Moses' life is that Moses would settle for no substitutes for God's presence. He was single-minded. There was a single-mindedness about his pursuit of God. Earlier, God had said, I'll send an angel. Moses said, no. No. If you don't go with us, we're not going. He would settle for no one other than the presence of God in his life. One of the most powerful verses that rattles my cage is Psalm 73, 25, which says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Folks, that is single-mindedness. The Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. One thing I do, I am single-minded in my pursuit of this relationship. I am single-minded in my pursuit of you, God. I am moving towards that way. And Moses was there. Moses was single-minded. God, you told me at the burning bush what your plan was for my life. You told me what the mission was. You revealed yourself. You've been revealing yourself in power and glory all the way along the line. God, I want to be right there, and I'm single-minded in pursuit of what you have for my life. Now, I've got to ask you, how many of you can say, I am single-minded in pursuit of what God has for my life? Most of us are double or triple or quadruple-minded about life rather than being single-minded. And we know just from life that if we're distracted in life, if there's many things popping at once, it's hard for us to focus. We need to become single-minded about pursuing the will of God and the person of God and the majesty of God and the presence of God. And then finally, what we see revealed here is that Moses wanted more of God. That is, he had a burning desire to know God, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. We don't get a chance to hang around the stream and watch the deer come along. We get to watch them eat our bushes and our gardens. But if you've had a dog, have you ever had a dog? That dog goes out and he's running around and and then he comes back and there's a bowl of water in front of him. Doesn't care whether it's clean or dirty or warm or cold. That dog begins to lap it up for all it's worth. You've seen that. Many of you have. That dog is thirsty. Has to have that water. The same kind of longing is expressed here. I am thirsty for you, God. I am hungry for you, God. I want your presence. I desire you above all things, God. This is where Moses had come to. It began with that relationship of knowing God and being known. It then progressed as as Moses began to put himself more and more in the center of God's will for his life to the point where he became single-minded and focused on this relationship with God and being where God wanted him to be and pursuing his presence with a passion. And it ended up with an overwhelming desire that Moses said, if I get zapped in order to do it, I have got to see your glory, God. I've got to know you more. Show me your glory. Now, here's the question. Is that your prayer to God today? Show me your glory. Lord, I want to know you more. I want to experience more and more of your presence. I want you to show up in my life. And I want to know you're there. And I want you to show up in your presence and your power and your goodness. And God, I want it so badly that this morning I'm asking you to show up so that I don't leave this place the same person as the one who walked in the door. I want to experience your presence in a way that transforms and changes my life forever. But I want to warn you, if you pray that prayer, it is a dangerous prayer to pray. If we ran on and read chapter 34 of Exodus, we would see that Moses comes back from the presence of God 
and his face was glowing. It was shining because he had been in the presence of God and the people could see it. And more than that, more than his face changing, everything changed. He was never the same again. When you experience the presence and the glory of God, you may not shine physically, but people will know you've been in God's presence. Have you ever been around people that you, that you know they're prayer warriors, you know they walk with God, you know that, that, that they are in the center of God's will for their life? There's just something about them that radiates. You know they've been in the presence of God. Is that your hunger? For people to be able to look at you and say, that person has been in the presence of God. That person has been on their knees before God. That person has, in, has just baptized themselves in the Word of God. That person knows God personally. Is that what you want people to see in your life? It's easy to say yes, but I tell you, when people begin to see it, sometimes... Sometimes it messes up relationships. The testimony last week, Thomas and Cheryl Olson. Remember Cheryl came to know Christ. Thomas thought she was a, an idiot, a fanatic. She'd gone over the edge. You begin to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. Some people will think you've gone over the edge. You've left the reservation. When you experience the presence and the glory of God, life begins to change, and not always for the better. Go ahead and read the rest of Exodus and see what Moses had to put up with. He put up with a lot. Because when you declare your allegiance and your determination and your single-mindedness to be in the will of God, you have an enemy. <laughs> You have an enemy who is after you and gunning for you. Paul talks about the fiery darts of Satan. Well, he does have fiery darts, but he has bazookas too. And you've got a target. When you're in the presence of God, you're declaring enemy on the armies of hell. And they're happy to declare war on you there'll be new challenges that come up in your life new opportunities sometimes we view them as one and the same sometimes we don't and here's why because in order for you to grow in your relationship you have to have challenges you have to push beyond the barriers you have to go deeper and so some of you struggle you go oh you know i'm reading of this the the uh you know love is patient well god i want to be patient if you ever, ever are so foolish as to say, God, grant me more patience, it will be Katie, bar the doors. Everything under the sun will be go wrong. So evidently someone has been praying that for me this week. Patience is not something that happens magically. It is something that is developed through trials and tribulations and problems. And it's not just true with that. It's true of any of the graces that God wants to provide in your life. But I want to promise you, if you will cling 
cling, hold to the presence of God, just as Moses did. If you will embrace the relationship that he wants with you, if you will make it your own, if he will be your God and you will be his child, if you will walk in step with his will, understanding more of what he wants in your life, and then moving your life to the lines with what he wants for you, if you're single-minded in pursuit of his presence, choosing him above all other things, and if you desire him, hunger for him, thirst for him, long for him, you, like Moses, will experience more of his presence And you will see around you more of the glory of God. You may not have the same cleft in the rock experience that Moses had. But God is more than willing to show up in His glory now. And so the question I leave ringing in your ears. Are you willing to pray to God? Show me your glory.